think it's a crossbill, but I can't see it. <laughs> I'm only guessing. Oh, here's two. Like it should be right in this tree, right? It's a little maddening. Birding can be maddening, beautiful, messy, cold, wonderful, and exciting. And this month, I'll be taking y'all on a journey into the Salish Sea and the birds that call it home. At least for a part of the year. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. For this episode, instead of recording interviews on my laptop, the sound bites you'll hear in between my commentary are recorded either outside in nature or on an 87-year-old sailboat. Yes, I am officially in the field for this one. In case you're new to this podcast, my day job takes place on a wooden sailboat in the waters around Washington State and British Columbia, also known as the Salish Sea. After a slow year with few miles under our belt, we finally made it off the dock and up to the San Juan Islands, one of my favorite places in Washington. The islands are filled with whales and glacial geology and bioluminescent plankton, and yes, lots of birds. The resident birder on this trip is Kevin, who you'll hear throughout these sound bites. Where are we right now and what are we doing? Oh, so we are on Orcas Island waiting out some weather. We are conducting this while there's a gale blowing outside, <laughs> so which was pretty fun. We've been waiting all day for the weather and it has finally arrived <laughs> right as we're about At, to go to bed. Uh, 10, 10 p.m. Yeah, we're tied to the dock and the boat feels like we're in a seaway, which is going to rock me soundly to sleep, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we're a few days into this week-long trip in the San Juans, and it's a very cool time to be up here because if you're interested in birds, there's like a real changing of the guard that happens this time of the year where our, our summer birds head further south and some of our winter birds show up. While in our wet, windy, and wooden home, Kevin walked the crew through identifying what birds we saw the previous morning. So I saw this bird, I didn't recognize it. I noticed the color, I noticed the size. This bird was about robin size and almost entirely gray, except it had a very stunning white eye ring that I got to see in the binox. And so I'll just flip through and look for one that matches the description. And then if something does, first thing I do is look at the range map. And I say, this one that kind of looks like what I remember, a gray bird, white eye ring. He's 5.7, that's about robin size. Oh, but he only occurs in Arizona, so <laughs> not what we saw, right? And so you just keep doing that uh, until you like get some options. And so this one that it, in fact was, is called the Townsend Solitaire. Uh, not only is it robin size, it's actually related to robins, so there you go. It's a gray bird. Robin size, white eye ring. You look at this range map they have in the book, and they are not really, it's like rare here, it says, but just because it's rare doesn't mean you can't see it. 
just means it's it's more unusual. And here I look read the description and it says uncommon. And that's an open coniferous forest. That's kind of where we were. Winters at lower elevations. Plain gray color and long tail. Yeah, that all sounds like what I saw. Note white eye ring, it says. So I noted that. There you that. go, yeah, yeah. One of the other birds we saw on our week-long trip was the sooty shearwater. There's the uh, sooty shearwater. That's the one we saw. Crossing the straits, it was like kept commenting on its flight pattern. Sooty shearwaters, I'm pretty sure, almost somewhere off of New Zealand. Um, they fly yeah. all the way over here. I've definitely seen shearwaters in New Zealand yeah. before. Yeah. And species that breed in the southern hemisphere, such as great shearwater and sooty shearwater. Yeah, how crazy is that, right? So they breed off of New Zealand, and then they fly up here. And Do you know what the lifespan of a sooty shearwater is? I don't, I bet it's like 40 years or something, you know, super long. I could have seen the same shearwaters in New Zealand that I saw here. There isn't a lot of data about when sooty shearwaters die, but they don't start breeding until they're five to nine years old, so it would make sense for them to live to 30 or even older. At the beginning of 2020, a Cory's shearwater was found in South Africa that was 40 years old. In Wales, Manx shearwaters have been found that are over 50 years old and still having babies. Pretty much everyone just classifies shearwaters as long-lived birds. Sooty shearwaters spend their lives traveling 40,000 miles each year, going from their nesting sites in the southern hemisphere to their feeding sites in the northern hemisphere. And they share their long lives and ocean traveler labels with other large seabirds, like albatross another bird that spends most of its life out on the water, only coming back to land to have babies. There's a, albat a Lasan albatross. A bunch of them nest north of the Hawaiian Islands. There's like a bunch of little islands that go north from the Hawaiian Islands, and that's where most of the Lasan albatross nest. And there's one that they have abandoned and have been observing it. They know it's like 80 years old or something, and it just hatched a chick. To keep track of birds as they fly around the world, scientists put loose bands on their feet with an ID number on it. The oldest known Laysan albatross was first banded in 1956, making her over 70 years old. Her name is Wisdom, and in March this year, she hatched another chick, which was probably around her 30th child. The Laysan albatross, when they have a chick to feed, one parent will sit with the chick and the other one will, will fly all the way up to like Alaska and back to Hawaii and eating and eating and eating, getting super fat, comes back, is able to like feed the chick. Only the freshest. Yeah, not so fresh. <laughs> Just like pukes up a bunch of fish oil basically and then has its own fat reserves to like sit and, and, and keep the chick warm for the next week with other partner does it. Very cool birds. And then they don't, like, all these birds only go to land when they breed. They never land on shore if they're not there for some sort of mating or nesting. Albatross take about 10 years to come to breeding age, and so they'll spend, like, the first few years of their life at sea without ever touching land. The birding bible, the one Kevin is using to ID the birds we're seeing during this trip or to look up fun facts about albatross, is Sibley's Bird Guide. So if you want a birding book, that's a good place to start. There's also a great app from the Cornell Ornithology Lab called Merlin Bird ID, which has images, range maps, and the calls that birds make. When you're out birding, how much of the identification do you do based on sound versus 
visuals. Ooh. I would say, because I'm fairly used to the birds that are around here, like today we heard the red-winged blackbirds and the juncos and the crossbills, and you're like, oh yeah, that all just like kind of fits in with what I expect. Sometimes if they sound close, I'll try and look for them, like we were looking for that crossbill. Here's a case of birds that we could definitely hear before we saw them. These were red-winged blackbirds that were all hanging out in a tree in someone's yard on Orcas Island. After we heard the birds nearby, we looked closer and saw blackbirds with distinct red patches on their wings. Sometimes bird names are pretty self-explanatory. Do you have a favorite bird call that you like to whistle? Ooh, ooh, not that I like. Well, I have a favorite bird call, which is definitely the Swainson Suresh, and I can't whistle it well. Uh, I think Chickadee is my best one. So let's see if I can do it. Yeah, there's like a black-capped chickadee and a chestnut-backed chickadee in there. Black-cap goes, they say chickadee-dee, and then your chestnut-back says cheeseburger. And aside from getting familiar with different bird calls, using resources like books and apps can also be super useful during this time of year when birds can change their colors. For some species, their feather colors change if they are breeding or not, like pigeon guillemots that are half white, half black in the winter, and then mostly black when they are breeding in the summer. This does up the ID game a bit, because you can get used to looking at a bird colored a certain way, and then poof, it's a different color. Well, in the spring, right, you see, like, the, the guillemot, a bunch in breeding plumage, and then there'll be, like, one in non-breeding, and you wonder if he's, like, super embarrassed. <laughs> then, like, now you wonder if they, like, look at the one that's still in the breeding plumage and be like, dude, <laughs> dude, just get over it. <laughs> Your time's fast, yeah. man. <laughs> just, like, yeah. But also a note to all of you folks, while Kevin and I might be cracking jokes in the middle of a storm, you don't need to go off on a grand adventure to see cool birds. You can find them right in your backyard. And that's one of the reasons why birding is a great way to get nerdy about wildlife. While I was editing this episode, I heard a flock of European starlings hanging out in a tree in my backyard, and I ran out to record them. My neighbors were probably very curious as to why I was holding a microphone into the air, but hey, it's all for the name of science. Now, if I saw a starling on its own, I probably couldn't tell you what it was. But put it together with a hundred other starlings, making a racket outside my window, and I can definitely tell you what kind of bird it is. And on that note, it's time for the episode recap. Birding is a great way to get into looking at wildlife. First, because birds are almost everywhere, whether you're out on an ocean adventure or making a podcast in your living room. There are also really great resources to help you get started, like Sibley's Bird Books or the Merlin Bird ID app, which is free, by the way. Birds are also great because they can often be heard along with being seen, though sometimes all you can really do is hear them, like when Kevin and I were looking for the crossbill at the opening of this episode. We never did find it. 
There are also so many different kinds of birds, small songbirds like chickadees, all the way up to large oceanic birds that live for decades, like shearwaters and albatross. And for a closing note, let's not forget that birds are dinosaurs, which really makes them the coolest animals of them all. Aside from Sibley's and Merlin Bird ID, the other great online resources are the Audubon's Guide to North American Birds and All About Birds, which is the Cornell Ornithology Lab's identification website. Links to those will be on my website, goforthinscience.com, along with an NPR article about Wisdom, the 70-year-old albatross. Thanks for listening, and happy birding!